Thank you very much for that reading. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors at church, and uh, it's a joy to be here at Neutral Bay this morning. Um, I would love to pray, and then let's look at this um, passage together for a few minutes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for the encouragements we've already had. Uh, we thank you for your word and the chance to pray to you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. And we ask that you would be present here in power by your spirit to write this deeply on our hearts today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man named uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You may have heard of him. He was imprisoned in the Soviet Union, in the gulags, in the uh, concentration camps. And he spent a lot of time after the war trying to figure out what happened in the Soviet Union and why things went so badly. He did a number of interviews with people, lots of interviews, lots of research, lots of reading books, trying to understand what went wrong, how so many people could be killed. 60 million um, people uh, lost their lives. And this was his conclusion of what went wrong at that time. He said this, If I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Men have forgotten God. People have forgotten the God who created us, the God who gave his son for us. And if we look at Israel in this part of the Gospels, we could basically say the same thing of them, that they have forgotten God. And you can see it exemplified in the attitude of Herod in this passage and, and what he does to John the Baptist. Verse 5 is a, a great summary of what he did. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. But eventually out of fear of the guests at his party and probably even in a drunken state, he commits to this oath that he has made, this foolish oath, uh, the request of his mistress's daughter, and he has John beheaded and the head is brought in on a, a platter. Now, in Australia today, in Sydney today, we don't tend to kill religious leaders. We don't kill prophets so far. Uh, we don't... Um, we don't do that kind of thing. But are we very far from the attitude of Herod? Are we so far from that same attitude in our country? We love to remember people's names. We remember gossip. We remember birthdays. We remember the details of our life. We remember to look after ourselves. But there's someone whom we've forgotten, isn't there? We've forgotten God as a country, as a nation. We love to take God's gifts. We take the gift of a stable job and a great house and all the, the wonderful things about living in Sydney, the beautiful city that we live in. But generally speaking, we as modern society have rejected the giver of those gifts. And what I want us to see today is how God responds to a world that has done that, that has said no to him. I want us to see how... God uh, re relates to this world with its back turned to him. What does he do? Does God extinguish people? Does he wipe people out? Does he just 
give them the cold shoulder and ignore them? Does he get uh, really angry? Well, not at this point. What we see God do is he shows up as God with us. God with us. You remember back in Matthew chapter 1 when Jesus is first conceived in Mary's womb and it says this, Matthew 1.22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that's Isaiah, 700 BC, and the words that he spoke were, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The gospel account shows us that time and time and time and time again, God wants to show himself as the God who is, is showing compassion and mercy and grace to a world, to a people that do not deserve it. And he does this most obviously, most wonderfully through Jesus and the ministry that Jesus did. So today I want us to see two things. The first one that I want us to see is this. I want us to see that God is with us as the provider for his people. God is with us as the provider for his people. In Jesus, we discover that God restores and blesses those who receive him and who trust in him. Matthew uh, chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus had heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus is the God-man, but he is a man. He's a human. And so he needs time to grieve his friend John and this awful tragedy that's taken place. He needs time by himself to process, maybe, the awful news that he's heard. He needs time to pray. And maybe his mind is starting to turn towards his own death, his own mission, where he's going to the cross. Maybe Jesus is thinking about that in private. But the crowds can't be stopped. The crowds come and follow him. They find him. And um, Jesus' heart of love compels him out towards the crowds again, out of his time by himself, back towards the people and their needs. See verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Jesus is walking amongst these crowds of people with so much brokenness and so much need. They've got sicknesses and paralysis and lifelong problems. They've got... um, brokenness of relationships, sin problems, uh, and Jesus is amongst them. And even, even as he cares for all those physical needs that they have with his miraculous work, he also cares about something so simple. He cares about the fact that they have food as well, that they have that evening's meal. And I love Jesus' compassion here. It's something that comes up out of his Guts. He has this gut-wrenching compassion. And it's a bit like that scene in, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, the first one where Frodo arrives in Rivendell, this uh, elven city. He's, been, he's had all these troubles on the road so far already. 
He's faced this darkness and then he wakes up in this amazing, enormous bed, this lush environment and they've been looking after him in his body and his soul, his emotions and they're around him, they're seeking restoration for him. Jesus is like that here. He is providing this beautiful restoration and healing and uh, transformation for people. It's physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual. It's, and now he wants them to have dinner as well. See verse 17, where the disciples consider how they can feed this big crowd. We have only here five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So the full number of people here, including the kids and and the women, was probably 20,000 people. It's like two North Sydney ovals uh, together. Uh, And and this is what Jesus is now about to feed this crowd. Um, And there are parts of the Bible that call us to imitate Jesus. And there are parts where we just stand back and say, wow, you are Lord and I'm here to adore you. And this is one of those parts of the Bible. We see Jesus as the one who provides abundantly in a way that none of us ever could. In fact, that only God ever could. And there are three parts of the Old Testament that this kind of points us back to, that are a bit of a background for this section. The first one is the Israelites in the wilderness as God feeds them the manna from heaven and this, this wafer just miraculously appears on the ground every day and they're fed and they're satisfied. And the, the other one is um, Elisha the prophet as he feeds this group of people which is a large group of people with an insufficient amount of food because God says to him there will be an abundance of food left over. And that's a theme that comes up through Matthew's gospel that um, Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament. So that's part of the background. But the other one, the other thing that this makes us think about is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Because where does it tell us Jesus got them to sit? They sit on the grass. This is the shepherd with the sheep feeding, looking after the sheep, providing for them. And did you notice verse 20? They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. Jesus' ministry reminds us God is abundantly providing for us. He's not abandoned our world. Jesus is God with us. And yes, we live in this world where prophets might be killed and where governments abuse people and where people have forgotten God, but God responds with kindness and sending his son. He sent Jesus to provide for us. 
And the promise here is that there will one day be an ultimate Rivendell moment, this moment when we come and are completely restored in the, the kingdom of God. And right now in this life, we get glimpses of that by faith. We get tastes of that. Jesus here is giving a taste of that. We get the, the taste of the relief that comes from our sins being forgiven. We get the peace that comes from relationship with God being restored. We get the uh, meaning that comes from being enfolded into this eternal mission of God. We get the strength and provision that God gives for us to live for him. Uh, We get uh, all these glimpses, but one day we will experience the presence of Jesus fully, not by faith, but by sight. To have the full experience as we walk in God's kingdom. So for the Christian, it's not a matter of if God will provide for every one of our needs. It's just a matter of when God will provide for every single one of our needs. Now, I was going to preach this today and say, well, I don't think we need to ask God to you know, do miraculous feedings of crowds like this. That's what I was going to say. And so we don't need to pray for that. But then I thought about the life of George Mueller, uh, this man who, who lived at the start of the 19th century. And he, he was a man who started orphanages and schools for children who were in need. And the way that he carried out that work was by faith, by prayer, He didn't plan for how they were going to do it. He didn't know how the the next meal was going to come often. Uh, But he simply prayed and depended on the God who provides. And over the course of his lifetime, he helped 10,000 orphans. Uh, And to the point that some people said, you're helping them too much. You're bringing them out of this stage of life that they should be in and you're, you're making their life too good. And it's estimated he received 50,000 answers to prayer throughout his life. And you can read his amazing biography uh, by Roger Steer. But this is what George Mueller once said. He said, Every child of God is not called by the Lord to establish schools and orphan houses and to trust in the Lord for means for them. He's saying, you might not all have the same mission that I had. But this is what he says. Yet... There is no reason why you may not experience far more abundantly than we do his willingness to answer the prayers of his children. Now, we shouldn't think that God's going to answer our prayers to do things if we just desire to look after ourselves. That's what James chapter 4 says. It says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. But if God is placing a burden onto your heart to pursue the growth of his kingdom, to look after people in love, then why not ask him to provide for it as well? Why not ask God to do those things which seem impossible? He's shown us in the coming of his son that he is the ultimate provider for every need of his people. So that's the first thing we see. Jesus is God with us as our provider. 
Second thing we see today is that in Jesus, God is with us as our Lord. God is with us as our Lord. Sometimes this account of Jesus walking on the water and calling Peter to follow him is primarily seen as a faith lesson. And I want to get to that. I think there is lessons for our faith in it. But it's funny in Christianity, if you start by trying to make it about your faith, if, if that's what you start with, it's funny how you can sometimes just make it about yourself. And you kind of go off on the wrong track. But if you start by making it about the lordship of Jesus, if that's what you come to see from what God's revealed to us, then you find that faith comes to life in the process as you look at the lordship of Jesus. And that's what happens here. Have a look at verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So Jesus finally gets his alone time. And if, if you um, <laughs> have housemates or if you uh, live in high-density housing or you live, have a corporate job or you've got children, you know how he feels. You, you want to have some time by yourself. But notice Jesus is not just here to uh, play Xbox and watch Netflix and you know, play golf. And those things are God's gifts that, that we should give thanks for them. But what he's here to do is to pray. And it's in prayer that we're strengthened. It's in prayer that we regain perspective, that the Holy Spirit does his work in us and strengthens us. Sometimes at the 8 o'clock service in Kirribilli, uh, where I lead, um, we sing this hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I want to ask you, do you bring everything to God in prayer? Would you do that? Or are there areas of life which you've closed off from God? Uh, all the daily needs and struggles, the relationships in your immediate family, in your extended family, the griefs that, that you hear about, the, the things on your mind and your heart, your anxieties and sicknesses. And notice, though, that Jesus is again pulled away from the time by himself back to be with people who are in need. And he's willing to be with them until he miraculously walks out onto the lake. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, many people will see this and say, well, this is anti-scientific document. We have um, grown past that in the modern world. We don't need this kind of thing anymore. But I want to say science is about observing the nature of this universe. That's what it's about. And so unless someone was there observing the molecules of water beneath Jesus' feet that day, then science doesn't have anything to say about what happened here. But again, this isn't a miracle that shows us how similar to Jesus we are. The point here is that this is really weird. He's walking on water. Uh, it shows us, in fact, how different we are from Jesus. We are more like the disciples. Have a look at verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, 
They were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. And I can relate to that. Everything in this account is pointing towards a freaky Halloween moment rather than something else. But throughout the Bible, it is God who controls the sea. It is him who has control over the elements of this world because he made it. And it all sits in his hand. Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is, might, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. And Job says of God, Who commands the sun? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? It's God alone in the Bible who walks on water. And so we're learning something about Jesus here. Matthew 14, 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. If it wasn't obvious enough already, Jesus makes it really explicit here who he is and how he's revealing himself to be. Verse 27, he says, I am That's what that says, I am. And that is the same name that God uses for himself in the Old Testament. And then Jesus also says, don't be afraid. And, you know, throughout the Bible, God often reveals himself, I am God, so don't be afraid. I am with you, so don't be scared. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I am the God who walks on the water, who has the power over the molecules of the sea, Don't be worried. Don't fear. I'm the Emmanuel. I am God with you in this situation. And now Jesus reveals his full identity. And then comes the faith lesson as Peter walks out on the water to Jesus. And here's the faith lesson. It's that Jesus as the divine Lord leaves us with no reason to fear or be worried or afraid about anything. Verse 30 says, when he saw the wind, that's Peter, when Peter saw the wind, and that was when the fear came in, when he turned his eyes from Jesus to the, the terrifying things around, the impossible situation he was in, that was when he cried out to Jesus and when he began to sink into the water. And I want to say for us, There is a subtle thing that can happen where we just shift our eyes off Jesus to the problems. And suddenly we're just talking about the problems and all the things that make us afraid. I know for me, one of the ways I do this is just endlessly consuming the media cycle. I love reading the news. But it can be a problem because I just, it clouds out God's perspective on the world and on my life, and on others. 
We just need to be careful where our eyes are going. Remember uh, George Mueller. Imagine if he had been just terrified day, to, day after day. Where's the food going to come from? How are we going to look after these children? Where's the, how are we going to get the, them clothes? Where are they going to sleep? Imagine if that's what he'd been focused on day after day. I doubt he would have prayed and sought God's work for these children. But that's not what he did. He kept his eyes on God. He kept asking God. He kept trusting Jesus. So I want to finish today with two, two final lessons out of this text for us. The first one is this. Jesus is not confined by what we think is possible or what we call normal. And we need to go to him with our impossible situations. As we follow Jesus, we do face impossible hurdles and insurmountable problems, it seems like. And I don't know what they are for you today. But think about the disciples here. They, Jesus says to them, will you feed the crowd of 20,000 people? How are they going to do that? An impossible situation. Peter walking on the water, a man walking on the water. How is he going to do that out to Jesus? Impossible. What are your impossible situations in life at the moment? Where you think, I just don't know if I can keep going with Jesus. Don't know if I can keep being faithful and fruitful. Would you bring them to him? Would you look to Jesus, the divine Lord, who fed the crowd, who walked on the water, who showed himself to be the God of all things and bring to him those struggles today? Would you say to him, whatever happens, Jesus, here, whatever happens, you're in charge. You know what's going to happen. You know the start from the, the end. You're in control and I trust you. Help me. Would you say that? In my life, I've seen many Christians take crazy steps for God in faith. And I have seen sometimes it goes spectacularly in the wrong direction, not where they thought that it was going to end up. But I've also seen them through that recognize the provision of God, the, the, the lordship of Christ in new ways that they'd never thought possible. First lesson. Second lesson, Jesus shows himself as the Lord over the creation. And so the right posture before him is worship. This comes out of verse 32 and 33 at the end of the passage. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The disciples get it. They know what is going on here. They know that God is the one who walks on the water. And friends, we need to be people who worship Jesus, not just admire him, not just like him, not just think that he has things to offer us. We need to worship him, lay down our lives before him. It's the only right posture before the God of this universe who has come to be with us. And when we worship Jesus, what happens is we take our love and our affection that should be for God, but we've put it on other things and 
we, we put it back on him. It takes our love from all the wrong places and it puts it back in the right place where it belongs. So when you decide, I am going to follow what Jesus wants me to do in spite of everyone around me saying, this is just nuts, you're worshipping Jesus. When you say, I'm going to seek God's change in this area of my life and put to death the old self and put on the new self that he wants me to to live in, as hard as it might be, then you're worshipping Jesus. When you choose to pray before you react and speak and respond in some way that's not helpful, you choose to pray, you're worshipping Jesus. When you ask God, God, what could I do with my gifts, with the opportunities you've laid in front of me? What, what could I do today, this week, this year for you? And would you provide for it? You're worshipping Jesus. And when we do that, we become aligned with ultimate reality. We become aligned with the God who came to us. And we stop living our lives depending on ourselves. But we remember that even though this world may have forgotten God, God has not forgotten us. He sent his son to be God with us and to show himself as the one who provides the one who rescues, the one who changes all things and who brings in his kingdom for his glory. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, today for this um, view of Jesus that we get in the Gospels, in this part of Matthew. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for how he shows himself to be your son, the one with authority and power and glory, the one that angels worship. And we've been able to see him in our world displaying the authority and power of God. Father, help us to align our lives to Jesus, to trust him as the one who provides, to worship him, as the Lord of all. We pray that you will put this deeply into us and transform us from the inside out so that everyone can see that it's your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.